fantastic, fantastic. All right, everybody silence your cell phone, and uh, if you need to go to the bathroom, go now. We're going to be here for just a minute. Uh, if you need to fidget and walk around, sit near the back of the room, okay? A little housekeeping real quick. All right, so if you were here last week, I don't need to recap, but a lot of people were on vacation, so let me give you the shortest recap that I can give you. This morning, the story starts, we have two widows. Don't worry about the other characters yet, just focus on the two. One is older, one is younger. They are mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. The mother-in-law is an Israelite. The daughter-in-law is a Canaanite. Naomi, the mother-in-law, sees no future, no hope, no happiness. The daughter-in-law, Ruth, is full of energy, full of hope, like a new Christian. She's, she's bubbly, she's excited, she's willing to work hard. She, she, and, and actually, she's going to be the one who will pull Naomi ultimately out of depression. Ruth, the younger, is committed to God. She's made some decisions. She's committed to Naomi. Ruth is fully aware that she is choosing to uproot her life and leave her people and go to Bethlehem in Israel. She is clearly choosing God. She is clearly choosing a future with God's people. She has chosen to be an immigrant. She's chosen the life of an immigrant. Ruth and her people, the Canaanites, the Moabites, they are idolaters. They are the enemies of Israel. They have fought many times. <laughs> they are not on friendly terms at all. Nonetheless, she's made a decision that she's going to immigrate to Israel and live among God's people, even if it means she is clearly going to be an outsider all her life. Naomi, the mother-in-law, has been traumatized. She's lost a husband. She's lost an eldest son. She's lost her youngest son. One of the daughter-in-laws has gone back to the Moabite people to be with their gods and their people and their culture and their custom. There are no children. There are no heirs for this family. We've taught about the Leverite marriage custom in here for months now. There are no male heirs. There are no children the family, this branch of the family tree is going to die. And for us, that's tragic. For them, it's like seven times more tragic because in this old patriarchal society, a woman's value to society was being able to produce male heirs and a whole bunch of them. Seven is the gold standard for the family. So you have two women, two widows, no male heirs. They are tragically without a future, without hope. Naomi looks at her life. She looks in the mirror and she says, I have nothing. I have no one. I've lost it all. But then somewhere Ruth makes a commitment to Naomi and says, no, you've got me. And at some point, Naomi stops calling her, or the author does in the text, stops calling Ruth daughter-in-law, and instead... Naomi starts calling her daughter. That's the level of relationship that has developed now. She's not the outsider daughter-in-law that I'm stuck with. 
Now their lives are forged together. She calls Ruth daughter, and Ruth calls Naomi mother. From this point in the story, they are fused together. They are a team, and they will be together until death. That is the promise that Ruth has made. When we left last week, we ended on this word, but Ruth was a foreigner. That word foreigner is the tension that holds this whole story together. You're supposed to feel that. Uh, These are Jewish writings for Jewish people. And when they see that word foreigner in a Jewish writing, they're not a nation of immigrants like you. When they see foreigner, it holds tension in this story. The thesis question for last week was quite simple, and that question continues this morning. The question is this, who are God's people, and how do you get to be one of them? Everyone sitting in this room, after hearing this series of messages we've been preaching, should be able to answer this question right here. Who are God's people? You should have an answer for that. If not, you should have before the day's over. And how do you get to be one of God's people? This morning, I'd like to broaden the thesis just slightly. Here's where the material now starts becoming new. Let me broaden the thesis question. Can a foreigner, can an outsider be accepted as one of God's people? That is the tension that the Old Testament wants you to be pulled into. It's a Jewish book for Jewish people, but the author, and even in the New Testament, I showed you last week, Matthew will not let up on this point. They are making a point to keep reminding the insiders of these questions. Can a foreigner, foreigner, someone who's not in the clique, someone who's not in the group, can a foreigner be accepted as one of God's people? Let me use the word outsider because I think that plays better for your context. Can an outsider become part of God's people? Let me say it to you a different way and ponder this question. If you get to be God's people by faith, okay, if that's how you get to be God's people, if God accepts someone by faith, should God's people also accept that person on the basis of their faith? And I think now we take the ancient book of Ruth and we've made it tension for us. If God accepts someone by faith, what should God's people do with that person? Should they also accept that person by their faith in Jesus Christ? I'll let you just wrestle with that tension a little bit and we'll see if we can come to conclusions in the days ahead. Here's where the story starts this morning. They've now arrived in Israel. Ruth is working in the fields for the welfare system of Israel, which is gleaning in the fields. This is Israel's welfare program as outlined in the Old Testament. Ruth's been working in the field for a while, and Ruth and the big boss are now having a chat. And we come to an understanding that your reputation matters. Now, this may be news for some here this morning. Your reputation matters this is what Boaz begins to say to Ruth in the conversation I'm about to read you Boaz essentially tells Ruth Ruth your reputation precedes you Ruth 2 verse 11 
Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and you left your mother and you left your homeland and you came to live with a people you did not know before. Now, let me see if I can bring into play what you've learned about the Old Testament up till now, in 18 weeks of this. A proper reading of the Old Testament is that God's people failed to live up to their covenant relationship by imaging God. And they failed to live up to their covenant relationship by constantly going after pagan idols. And the result is, when you read the Old Testament, is that, quote-unquote, God's people are virtually indistinguishable at times from the pagans of the world. Is that a fair reading from what we've learned? And that's really the cycle of the Old Testament, excuse me, continually. If the ultimate human vocation is for you and I to be image bearers of God, if that is the ultimate vocation of human beings, then Israel failed miserably. They failed miserably. But there's also a message for our contemporary Christian community in these Old Testament passages because today we find ourselves in a very similar situation. Today we are inundated by people wearing the label of Christian who are virtually indistinguishable from the unsaved, from the non-believers in our community. And the modern mantra is basically this. Don't judge me. God accepts me the way I am. It's my life to live as I please. Now, a lot of what comes out of our mouth isn't actually Scripture. So let me clarify the tension that the modern church is held in this morning. Let me remind you that your life is not your own once you call upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. From the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, from that moment forward for the rest of your life, your life belongs to God. Can we at least all agree on that this morning? You cannot call Jesus Savior without also calling Him Lord. In other words, coming to Him for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life comes with strings attached. And the strings that are attached to that is when you receive Christ as your Savior, He's going to be Lord of all or not at all. You have to decide. And that's the decision you make when you call upon Him. And let me go further. Yes, you are correct. God does accept you the way you are. I 100% agree with that assessment. God accepts you the way you are. And then as soon as you are His, He immediately begins a process of change to transform you from the person you are to a version of you that looks like Jesus Christ, thinks like Jesus Christ, talks like Jesus Christ, obeys like Jesus Christ, and is like Jesus Christ. So when you say, well, God accepts me as I am, bingo, 100%, but don't stop there, keep going. Finish the sentence. And He's imparted this Holy Spirit of God into your life, and from the moment you receive Him, 
He does accept you the way you are. Let me say it this way. But He loves you too much to leave you the way you are. So, this whole modern thing of don't judge me, God accepts me, correct. But when He accepts you, He expects now that you're going to call Him Lord and be obedient and the transformation begins. And you will not be... Listen, if you're hearing my voice and you're the same person you were a year ago, if you're the same person you were pre-COVID, if you're the same person you were, then there's no change happening in your life. You want to ask yourself, what is wrong with me? Am I broken? Why am I not growing? Why am I not being transformed? God wants to transform our thinking our speech, our behavior, our action. And we have to believe that God rewards those who are being transformed. That those who are pursuing God, He has a reward upon their life. We we don't talk too much about this, but I believe that God rewards you for pursuing God. Let me read from Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please Him, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that God exists... Do you believe that God exists? And you must believe that God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. If you're pursuing God, I hold the belief this morning that God is going to bless and reward your life. Now Boaz says, Ruth, your reputation precedes you. And then Boaz talks about her courage and her commitment He clearly admires her, but then he goes a step further in verse 12, and he speaks a blessing upon Ruth. Listen to the blessing. May the Lord repay. It's basically the prayer I prayed upon you during the offering time. God, would you open the windows of heaven and bless your people? They are doing good. They are helping the immigrant. They are helping the refugee. They are launching new churches around the world. They are investing in the kingdom. They are making disciples. God, would you repay these people? Would you bless these people? That's a prayer I pray over you all the time. I pray for your promotion at work. I pray for you to get a raise even though the economy's in the toilet. I pray for you and your family to be blessed. I pray for your upgrade in home, your upgrade in career. Your upgrade. I pray blessings on you all the time because I know you're all in. And I know you're all engaged. And I actually read the Bible in a way that says God blesses those that pursue Him. Now Boaz believes the same, he has the same theological stance I have. Clearly Boaz believes in God. And Boaz believes that God is a rewarder. Now, I just want to see if I can drive this home to you. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but do you believe God rewards his people? All right, let's just pull that thread. Are you his people? Well, then knowing what you know about the character of God, is it reasonable to expect that God is going to bless And richly reward your life. It is. It is. I'm positive about it. But I've spent my whole life with believers. And that's part of my baggage. So you have to forgive me. I know you are not the people that I'm about to talk about. But I've spent my whole life with believers. And believers can be incredibly negative. 
Many Christians that I meet, when I engage them in conversation, it's just like they're waiting for the next bad thing to happen to them. Well, it's God's fault. It's just like like Eeyore losing his tail, uh, just walking around all the time with that voice. And I just want to shake people and say, stop it, Negatron. You're just negative to the nth degree. Stop this. That is a pagan way of thinking. Stay with me now. You guys have studied Greek mythology and all of this. You know about ancient cultures. This is the way pagans think. Pagans believed that the gods were always angry and that the gods had to be constantly appeased through different offerings. Throw another virgin in the volcano. The gods are upset. That'll be a beautiful tweet this week. The God, listen, the pagan gods are angry and have to be appeased. The true God sent his own son and gave his life for you. We're talking about very different things here. The true God, the God of Israel, the God that we're talking about is a God of love and kindness and mercy and graciousness. The God of the Bible is not like these man-made gods. When Moses said, God, I want to know you. I want to know what you're like. Listen to what God said about himself. The most quoted verse of the Old Testament. Listen to God's words. Exodus 34, verse 6. He passed in front of Moses, God did, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, If you were to say this morning, God, reveal yourself to me. Here's what God would say to you and has said to you. I am the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's how God describes himself. God is not waiting for you to appease him with another sacrifice. Those sacrifices have all been made now. That's over. Calvary ended that. God is a loving, gracious God this morning. He rewards and blesses his people. He'll pour his blessings into your life. And you need to live with the the hope that your life is going to be a good life. I don't... Not just a positive, you know, psychology kind of guy. That's not the message. The gospel is different than that. But I do believe in the power of hope. I believe that if you live with optimism and hope, your life will take a better track than if you're a negative and pessimistic person. I believe that 100%. So let's talk about the power of hope. Ruth 2, verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz says to Ruth, now they're working out in the fields and they're coming together now and they're having a meal Boaz said to Ruth, come over here. She's an outsider. She can't drink out of the same cups they drink out of. She can't eat with the same utensils they eat out of. She is unclean. Now, you've heard me talk about this, so I can't recap it all. Boaz now makes an astonishing move to this unclean outsider. Come over here. Have some bread. Dip it right here. Here's some nice Italian bread. It's warm. We've got butter. We've got balsamic and and some olive oil. We're going to put some Italian spices, a little cracked pepper on that. 
come and sit down right here with me and break the bread and dip it right here in the vinegar and all. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. Ooh, what's the corn you cook on the grill with the Mexican spices and the cheese on top of it? You know what I'm talking about? Mm, We've got roasted corn on the grill. Get you a couple of those. Sit right down here at the table with me. And when she sat down, she ate all she wanted. She had some left over. Now, these are people who are starving. These are people who are living day to day, coming out of a famine for 10 years. Verse 15, and as she got up to glean, time to get back to work, Boaz says to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and do not reprimand her. As a matter of fact, even pull out some of the stalks from the bundles. Whoops, we dropped those. Whoops, we're not allowed to pick those up. That's welfare for the poor. Do you see what's happening? She's getting all kinds of favoritism and special treatment now. You let her get those stalks. You let her pick them up. And you do not rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. And then she threshed the barley she had gathered separate the, sta- the, 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 the hole and the stalk from the actual grain inside. You have to beat it. And she beats it all out, shakes it all out, and when she's done, it amounted to about an ephah. For those of you who are farmers, that's about uh, mm, three-fourths of a bushel. For those of you who are raised in the city, it means absolutely nothing, does it? For those of you who grew up in the city, that's 22 liters you know what a two-liter bottle of Coke looks like? She has 22 liters of threshed grain. That's a lot of grain, by the way. So now Ruth, here's the scene. Ruth is invited to sit with the executives. She's dining with the management. She's full. She has some left over. You say, what's happening in the story? Well, here's what's happening. Two things are happening simultaneously. Boaz is setting her up for success And number two, she's working hard for success. Now, I just want to throw this out as a general principle to all of you who are going to university, one day hope to have a good job. For those of you who want to grow spiritually, for those who want to live a good life, here's two great principles for you. She's being set up for success by Boaz, and she is working hard for success. Don't expect someone to set you up and give it all to you. You need to work your butt off for it. Otherwise, you're not going to have any character and you're not going to appreciate what you have. Parents, right there is where you're supposed to say amen. Okay? Now, I want to give you the other side. The other side of that work hard argument is you need somebody to help set you up for success. And parents and grandparents, that's your job. Let me say that. Church family, that's your job. Anybody in here that's, you know, making more than six figures, you're living a good life. What are you doing to help other people succeed? You learned something clearly about hard work, education. You know, you've got a good job. God's taken good care of you. Okay, now how are you paying that forward? How are you helping other people succeed? How are you helping other people stay out of a life of poverty? How are you helping? Now let me just, because I'm your pilot, see I'd love to talk to you for a long time this morning. I love seeing you succeed in every aspect of life. And I would love to bend your ear about education and entrepreneurship and investing and career planning and so many things. That you buy me a cup of coffee, I'll be glad to talk to you about it 
And if I'm not the right guy, I know who they are in the church, guys and gals, will bring them together and help you find a, a good way forward in your life. But in this moment, as your pastor, I need to focus on success in God's kingdom. So let me ask it to you from a very spiritual point of view. Who are you helping to be successful spiritually? Transformation of life. Bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. You know what Jesus said about fruit, uh, unfruitful trees? You know. Is your life bearing fruit as a Christian? Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Your life glorifies God when you bear fruit. We need to be in the fruit-bearing business. Spiritual parents in this church who are leading discipleship groups, their mission is to help you bear fruit. That is their mission. That is their calling. As a matter of fact, I can sum up what my next 10 years, my swan song, my exit strategy is. My next 10 years of ministry is summed up very simply in helping the next generation of leaders succeed. If you're looking at this church and you're saying, I don't know, I, want to, I just want to know if I want to be a part of this church for the next decade. What are, what's their mission? What are they about? Our mission is about setting up the young generation to be strong leaders for another 30, 40, 50 years. Missions needs to continue. Discipleship needs to continue. The work of the Lord needs to be continued by your grandchildren. Multi-generational Christianity, having a revival, is what we're all about. We're not about bowing at the altar of the Southern Baptist Convention or the Pentecostals or the latest trend or whatever. We're about being part of God's people on mission, trying to help the next generation succeed. And from the pastoral staff and the elder point of view, I can tell you your elders and your staff are all in. They are doing everything they can do and everything they, they can possibly think to do to help you be successful and set you up for ministry. Now, at this point, Ruth has no idea who Boaz is. Well, I mean, she knows who he is. He owns the land she's working on. But now let me make the story come alive. To Ruth, Boaz is just a landowner. To Ruth, Boaz is just her employer. To Ruth, Boaz is just a kind man who welcomed her into the field and has given her water and food and told, her, 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 uh, told the other employees, you look out for Ruth and let her stay here and let her glean and let her be successful. What Ruth knows is that she's made a commitment to God at this point, but what Ruth doesn't comprehend fully is how vastly God is at work. And I think maybe you could be in the same position Ruth is in. That you've made a commitment to God, but you don't really fully comprehend yet the vastness of what God is doing all around you. Don't fully comprehend the scope of God's care. It just hasn't fully registered on us. You see, Ruth didn't just luck into this job. God gave it to her. I want to say that about you. You didn't just luck into the job that you have. God has directed your life this way. God has guided you. And it's taken some detours maybe you didn't expect. Listen, I, I, I'm looking at some wonderfully successful people here. But I know your stories and I know how I've seen God humble you. And I've seen God teach you. And then I've seen God exalt you to the highest levels. This is Ruth, and this is you, and this is me. She's committed to God, 
She believes in God now, but she don't fully get the big picture of all that God is doing around her. She didn't just luck into the favor of her big boss. God did that. God put her in front of him. God called her attention. God opened his eyes. God gave her favor with him. God is working in Ruth's life, obviously, but what Ruth is just now comprehending is that God is also working in Boaz's life. And God is also going to do a miracle for Naomi and bring her out of this bitterness and depression. And God's also working a miracle for Israel. And God is also working a miracle for you and me. And you'll see it before the service is over. What I want to say to you in this section is this. Please do not be afraid of commitments. All of this was because Ruth made a commitment to follow God. Do not be afraid of commitments. I think I could make a strong case this morning that God honors when you make commitments. Whether that's to your spouse, to your family, to your children, to your grandparents, to, the, to God's people, to the church of Jesus Christ. When you make commitments to God, when you make commitments, God honors those commitments. Here's what Ruth does not know. She doesn't know, she's about to know, she doesn't know yet that Boaz is actually a kinsman of Naomi's husband. Boaz is actually family. Let me read Ruth 2, 1. Now Naomi had a relative. Underline that in your mind. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. A man of standing from the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. The author is a genius that, that did this story. With one word. Imagine the power of this one word. With one word, relative. Now, Naomi had a relative. With one word, relative, the author has given you a foreshadowing that the plight of the two widows is about to change. Boaz is rich. Here's what we know so far. Boaz is rich. Boaz is kind. Boaz is honorable. Boaz loves God. He likes dogs. He likes little children. He treats his workers with kindness. He helps the little ladies across the street. Now, I made up a few of those, but that's basically the picture that's being painted of Boaz. Ruth now has dined with the management. She's got 22 liters of threshed grain. She comes, 22 liters of threshed grain. A lot of you work out. I need to look that up and see what the weight is on that. That's got to be about 40 or 50 pounds of grain. That's a bit, that's like a sack of grain, Okay. I think Ruth's workout program is looking, you know, we're doing well. She's out in the sun threshing grain. Ruth, Ruth's getting fit. She's getting, you know, uh, a little sun kiss to her skin. Uh, her, her, she's thinned out quite a bit. And now she goes home with the grain. And now, <clears throat> now we're going to have some conversation. Ruth 2, verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked her, <clears throat> where did you glean today? <clears throat> It's the equivalent of coming home and saying, hey, did you have a good day at work? Where'd you work? Bless the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. Ruth said, yeah, I met the nicest guy and I've been working in this field. And the name of the man I work for today is Boaz. And with that one name, Naomi's color changes completely. Wait a second. I remember a few family reunions back 
Boaz is one of my husband's cousins. Yeah, that's that guy. And here's what her words come out as, verse 20. Oh, the Lord bless him, exclamation point. He, God, has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. Well, bless Boaz, God, you have not stopped showing kindness. The other Bible translations make this clear. It's not talking about Boaz. God has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. This man is a close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Plot twist. You ready? Plot twist. Ruth just happens to be working for the man who has the legal right to marry her and redeem everything that belongs to her deceased husband and her deceased father-in-law of her whole family. And this is the first time in the story that Naomi, the mother-in-law, it's the first time that Naomi, who is God's people, she is an Israelite, it's the first time that Naomi has had anything nice to say about God. You say, well, she's maybe not God's people. Oh, she's God's people. And she does love God and she knows the character of God, but she's just like you and I. She gets hurt and she gets mad at God. And you've never lived until you've been mad at God. You live long enough, you will be. You'll get mad at God because of the way people treat you, you'll blame it on God. You'll get mad because of the way your spouse treats you and you'll take it out on God. And you'll get mad at the way your children are behaving and disrespecting you, take it out on God. And you'll just find that it happens. It happens. And it's the first nice thing that Naomi has said about God. Now, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You say, well, you think it's okay to, you know, to talk nasty about God and be mad? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying this is a very human story. It's a very human story. And you can do what you like, but I choose to cut her some slack because of her suffering. She knows and has known all along in her heart that God is good. She knows that God hasn't abandoned his people. She knows all along. And so now the truth comes out of her heart. God has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. No, no matter what you've been through, please hear the words of your pastor this morning, God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. God loves you. He is with you. He is watching over you. His kindness has remained faithful. His ears are open to your cries. His arms are strong. He can still act on your behalf. God is with you. He has promised that He will never abandon you and you need to just let the hurt of your life dissolve in the presence of God's love this morning and let hope rise in your heart that life for you going forward is going to be different it's going to be filled with hope and joy and purpose listen I want you to have the hope today that your story is going to end happily ever after because there is power in hope Ruth is an immigrant She's worked through two harvest seasons, barley and wheat harvest evidently, in Israel now. Okay? And we know that as the story develops. Naomi is now going to guide Ruth to the Jewish customs and the steps she needs to take. So now Ruth must accept and implement mentoring. 
And here we are. For many of you, this is what you came to church for this morning. No one's speaking down to you. I know you're brilliant adults, educated, sharp people who love the Lord. But even though we are born-again people who love the Lord, we still need to take some administering. And when we hear what we need to do, we need to implement it. James has a lot to say about be hearers, uh, be not hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. If you hear but don't do, you're like looking in a mirror and forget who you are and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So this morning I want to challenge you. Accept and implement mentoring. Let me read from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verse 2. Now Boaz with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Naomi's coaching uh, Ruth up. Tonight he will be winnowing the barley on the threshing floor. Here's what I want you to do, Ruth. Listen to your mother now. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor and do not let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, take note of the place where he's lying. And then somewhere in the night, I want you to go uncover his feet and lie down. Yes? That's all. Then he will tell you what to do. You say, I don't know about this. Yeah, I know. I pastor you. You don't take advice very easily. Yeah, I know. And right now you're saying, I don't know about this. This sounds almost scandalous. I've been preaching from the Old Testament for 18 weeks. Has there been a sermon that hasn't been scandalous yet? Maybe the one Jeremy preached. I don't know. But they're all, they're all scandalous. Okay? But now she doesn't do anything inappropriate. That's what I want you to know. But it is risky. And I'll explain how it's risky. First, let me say this. Naomi has a five-point plan for Ruth. Now, she, now, Ruth doesn't know Jewish culture. Naomi does. Now, we often say this in discipleship. You can't lead someone to a place you've never been. If you've navigated Christian maturity, you know how to help people get there. And through some customs here in Israel, Ruth has no idea what to do. Naomi's going to guide her on the way forward. And the five-point plan is really simple. Points one and two are wash and perfume yourself. Doesn't that sound like good advice? I, I just think that's always good advice. All right? I think that should be your daily routine, okay? Point number three is dress for success. I have no fault with the plan so far. No fault with the plan so far. You know what we told our boys uh, as they are maturing? And I know you get sick of me talking about my kids, but I don't, I, you, know, you don't want me to talk about yours, I'm sure. Uh, uh, but as our boys started maturing and getting ready for the exit of university and in the business world, we taught them to dress for the position they wanted, not the one they were interviewing for necessarily. Uh, we told them to present themselves for what they could see coming down the road. Uh, we told Andrew a thousand times in the last few years when he was entry level in, in the government in Austin, we said, what position do you want? He said, chief of staff on the Senate side. So you know what Susan and I told him? Start acting like the chief of staff. When you're surrounded by people who don't do their job or don't perform well, just ignore them and act like, act like the person you want to be. Dress like the person you want to be. Talk like the person you want to be. And lo and behold, one day you'll be 
Now, Naomi gives Ruth some advice and says, put your best self forward. Is that, can I just say it that way to you? Put your best self forward. Uh, I feel a little tension on that. You think that's bad? We'll get to the point four and five. Uncover his feet and lie down and curl up. Now, why that means absolutely nothing to you, living in America, where, again, do you understand why Naomi has to tell Ruth what to do? You and I wouldn't know how to navigate this situation. You and I are looking at this like, what? Are his feet clean? I mean, what, what's happening here? Uh, and I'll translate it for you in a minute, but this is why you need someone to guide you into unknown territory. So Naomi is basically saying to Ruth, now I'm going to tell you how to proceed. But good advice has to be implemented. Okay? I like to think that when you're involved at Cornerstone, we offer you great leadership week by week. But I want to say before I get to the story, you have to implement what we talk about in this room. You sit with a disciple maker at a kitchen table or at Starbucks or somewhere every week with your disciple maker. It's fine to hear what they have to say, but until you implement what y'all are talking about, there's not going to be really any life change. Until you yield to the Holy Spirit and make yourself accountable and let someone hold you accountable, there's no growth without accountability. Now, I don't, uh, you know, uh, Toby, I'm going to use you as a quick example. I didn't ask him if I could do this. To- Toby's a pastor. He, man, he's, he's a longtime staff member. He's a brilliant guy, spiritually mature. He and I met this week, and I'm like, Toby, as you enter into the Cornerstone family, we want, we want to get you making disciples. You're going to be one of our best disciple makers. You and Terry are going to crush it here. You're going to thrive here. But I'm going to ask you first to let somebody disciple you, even though you're a pastor, for a little while. And he looked at me with beautiful smile on his face and he said, I submit completely to whatever you have for me and I want to be everything God wants me to be here. Now, I just want to put his testimony out there for some of you who are bowing your back. You have no more, this man has decades of spiritual leadership at the top level of a church. And he's willing to do whatever is required, take some good advice, implement it to be a leader in this church. I want to say to the hundreds of you listening, go thou and do likewise. Go thou and do likewise. Toby, I love that heart of accountability, and that's why you are who you are. And that's why God's going to use you greatly in the future to make disciples for the kingdom of God. God is not done with you, not by a long shot. There's a very bright future here. Now, I want to say, you know, Naomi's offering up the advice, and here's what I want you to do. And I want you to get yourself ready. Here's really, I use modern language now because I think it will help you. What Naomi is actually advising Ruth to do is this. Ruth, the ball is now in your court. Is that starting to translate? You've been working with this guy through two harvest seasons. Time and months, months, months have passed now. Things are progressing here. Ruth, the ball is in your court. Ruth, you and I are going to take off our black morning clothes. We are no longer in mourning. Ruth, the next move in the relationship is yours. Daughter, tonight you're going to wash, perfume, put your best clothes on, and tonight you're going to put yourself out there. That's what's really being said. 
Now, let me just give you some spiritual application here. If the blessings of God may only be reached through courageous decisions, then what courageous decisions do you need to take this week? See, I love this statement. There's a Latin proverb. Fortune favors the bold. Sometimes it's rendered fortune favors the brave. It was made famous by the uh, Roman historian Pliny the Elder. He was sailing to go see the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. They said, what are you doing? He said, fortune favors the brave. Of course, he died in the whole thing, but that's nonetheless. <laughs> the statement became so famous that if you just go, not now because your cell phone's off, but if you just go Google this afternoon, fortune favors the brave, you'll see that that became the battalion motto for scores of marine battalions foreign legion battalions, uh, military divisions around the world, that became uh, the Duke of Wellington. I mean, the Duke of Wellington, who changed the face of Europe, okay, and overthrew an empire. His motto was, fortune favors the bold. Louis Louis Pasteur, who made significant contributions to the world, he tweaked it all slightly, and he said, chance favors the prepared mind. That's my whole point. Dress your best. People judge you by how you look and how you present yourself and how you speak. Give yourself the best shot you've got at trying to be an influencer of others. Listen to some good advice here. Now, what Naomi's saying to Ruth is, Ruth, this is a gutsy move now. But Ruth, here's what you need to do. You need to take a huge risk. But with huge risk comes huge reward. Put yourself out there. Now, I hope you're hearing the words that I'm saying. Many of you, these words are for you. Put yourself out there. You can't go home and cry that nothing's happening in your life. There's no change. There's no... Put yourself out there. Boaz is available. Ruth is available. Naomi says, the ball's in your court, Ruth. Put yourself out there. I'm a Canaanite. He's in Israel. I know. Put yourself, listen, if he says no, you're no worse off than you are right now. Put yourself out there. Naomi has just instructed Ruth to propose. Now, when you think of proposal, you think of, you know, bachelor in paradise and diamond rings and palm trees and candles. And that's not the way it gets translated over here. Ruth is being instructed to propose to the man She's a Canaanite. He's an Israelite. Israelites are forbidden from marrying Canaanites. And Naomi says, here's what you do. Go uncover his feet, curl up. He'll wake up at some point and he'll see you. And he'll know you're proposing. Let him know how you feel. You didn't come to church for relationship advice, I'm sure. This morning you came to hear, you know, about the gospel. But God's concerned about all of your life. Put yourself out there. Take risk. Professionally, entrepreneurially, take risks with love. Take relational risks. Put yourself out there. And put your best self out there. And don't be afraid to let people know how you feel. Now I say that knowing that all of us, including me, are terrified of rejection. We're all terrified of that. 
But I want to say to all of us as a community, we need to let people know how we feel. We need to share our feelings and put ourselves out there. Now, she knows the Israelites won't marry a Canaanite, so let me read. Well, listen, let me just proposition this to you. Maybe it's time for that rule to change. Has anybody ever thought of that? Maybe it's time that Israel change their rules. I like to say rules are made to be broken, but let's just go we'll be more civilized. Rules need to be changed at times because they're bad rules. We've learned new things and some things have changed and maybe we need to get rid of some old rules that don't make sense and adopt a better way. Now the old rule was an Israelite can't marry a Canaanite, but let's see what's going to happen. Ruth 3, 6. So she went down to the threshing floor. She did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz finished eating and drinking, was in good spirits, she went over and he went over to lie down at the far end of a grain pile. This is all outdoors. Ruth approached quietly. It's the middle of the night. She uncovers his feet and she lied down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Yeah, you, you, you wake up in the middle of the night and a strange woman in your bed. It, it startles you. You're sleeping outdoors, but you get the point. And Ruth approached quietly. In the middle of the night, he was startled. He turned. There was a young woman lying at his feet. Exclamation point. Who are you? He asked. It's me, I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are the guardian, redeemer of our family. She's just proposed. Spread your garment over me. I propose marriage between you and me. You have the legal right to redeem all of the land of my family and to marry me. What's the answer to the proposal? Verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness, underline that word in your mind, is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All of the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Does your reputation matter? This act of curling up at Boaz's feet was an action that communicated more than I can communicate with a simple English word. Ruth's actions in this are communicating to this man, I will give you my love, I will give you my loyalty, I will commit to you completely. Boaz says, this kindness you have showed, the proposal, all of this, the word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. That is the Old Testament word for God's love. It's translated three times in the book of Ruth as kindness. And we missed the point a little bit because it's one of those words that's so big and descriptive in Hebrew that we don't have an English word for it. And so Boaz says you've showed this kindness. It's more than kindness. It's a commitment of love. It is loyalty. It is I'm all in. I'll never leave you. I'll show you my blessings. It is the way that God loves his people. I will love you forever and nothing will ever change that. I will never leave you nor forsake you, God says. I love you with an everlasting love, the prophet Jeremiah says. I'm all in for you. I will give you my favor and my kindness. Boaz replies, Ruth, I tried to communicate the same thing through my actions. I mean, I dropped grain and I told them to care for you, but I never in a million years... Imagine that someone so young and so beautiful and so loyal and so hardworking and so kind would love me back the way that you're exemplifying right now through your actions. 
I never thought I would find love at my age. Ruth, dear, my answer is yes. (laughs) Yes is my answer. And right now, the author's designed this where you're supposed to be getting a little light in your spirit now. The plight of the widows is about to turn, but now the author gives you one more twist. Love has one more obstacle to overcome. Ruth and Boaz's hearts are about to burst with love, but Boaz knows something that Ruth does not know. And now Boaz breaks the bad news to Ruth. This would make a good Hallmark movie, wouldn't it? Ruth 3.12. Boaz says, although that is true, I am a guardian redeemer of your family. The problem is there's another who's more closely related to you than I am. Ruth's like, oh no, this just can't be. Now he's unnamed, so we just call him Mr. So-and-so because we don't know his name. She's like, I don't want Mr. So-and-so. I don't know if he helps old ladies across the street and likes puppies and little children. I don't know if he's kind to his worker. I know you and I've fallen in love with you. I don't want Mr. So-and-so. But here's the good news. Boaz is smitten too. And Boaz, as we learn, is a man of action. He's going to get to the business of getting his bride. And I don't mean next week. (laughs) I didn't intend to preach a sermon on proposal. But once you know, you know. And there's no need to kick the can down the road, okay? So when you know, go, okay? And so Boaz knows. and, And he's a little bit older than she is. And so the clock's ticking. And he's like... All right, I'm going to, and so now here's what happens. Ruth 3.16. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, how did it go? Tell me all about the events of last night. Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her. Verse 18. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, sit still for a minute until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest. He's smitten. He will not rest until it is settled. When? Cheering for love. Here we go. We've now come to the final chapter. And the author has designed this. So at this point, you're like, yes, he's got you cheering for their love. And the author has done a beautiful job of that. We're cheering for the Redeemer to love the the girl and, and buy everything. We're cheering for the Redeemer. We're cheering for love. By the way, that's the way the Bible's designed as well. To get you cheering for Jesus, the ultimate Redeemer of the world. To get you cheering for John 3.16 love. To get you cheering for Hesed love where God will never leave you. The Bible's got you cheering for the champion that's coming down the pages. Ruth 4 verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went to the town gate. He sat down as the guardian Redeemer he had mentioned came along. Just so happened he's sitting in the gate. Here comes the dude who is the closer kinfolk. And and here's what he says. Hey, come over here, friend, and sit down for a minute. He went over and sat down. Boaz took ten elders of the town. This is where you do business in the city gate here. Boaz took ten elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. And I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of the elders of the town, okay? If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me. If you want to buy the land, buy the land, buy it today. But if you don't want to buy the land, tell me so I will know. Obviously, I'm going to buy it. For no one has a right to do it, never right marriage, except for you 
and I am next in line, and I will redeem it, the earlier guy says. Mr. So-and-so says, oh, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've had my eye on that land for a long time waiting for something to happen. It's a good price. It's a good deal. I want it. I will redeem the land. <clears throat> what a great deal. Thank you, Boaz. You're such a good guy for bringing this to my attention and serving this up on a silver platter. Now, the author wants you to feel a little something in the pit of your stomach right now. The author's designed this. We're going to say, no, not after, not after these four chapters. You, you can't marry Ruth off to Mr. So-and-so after this beautiful story has developed. How can this be? Watch how cleverly Boaz navigates the Leverite marriage custom. He says this, oh yeah, but don't forget, you'll also have to marry the Canaanite woman and give her a child. Let me read it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite. You get a Canaanite idolater wife, the enemy of Israel, the dead man's widow, and in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, you're going to have to give her a child, a male child. Now watch Mr. So-and-so start doing the calculations in his mind. You guys remember when I preached about Tamar. He's doing the math in his head right now. If you do the right thing, the right thing will cost you plenty. Doing the right thing is always expensive, but it's well worth it for doing the right thing. What he's calculating in his mind is if I marry Ruth, if I get the land, marry Ruth, give her a child, I've got how many children of my own, and how much of my own inheritance do I have to give to Ruth's child if I do this? If I marry her, it's going to cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars of my estate that are earmarked to my own children the land isn't worth $200,000. That's not a good deal. Why would I do that? He's run the math. He's come to a decision. Ruth 4, 6. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, Boaz. I cannot do it. Woot, woot, woot. The author's designed it. Where you're now doing a little jig because love wins and the outsiders are outsiders no more. Here we go to close it. Ruth 4.13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord. For he's not left you without a guardian redeemer. May this child be famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, don't be afraid of commitment. Your daughter-in-law who loves you, she is better to you. Seven sons. That Canaanite daughter you've got, daughter-in-law. She's better than the gold medal standard. She's better than seven sons. She has given birth to this baby. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Naomi became the nanny to the child. And the women living there says, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. 
Now, let me wrap it up. We are amazed that Boaz has broken with the customs of Israel. And this famous man in Bethlehem has committed his life to a Canaanite woman, an outsider. And as soon as he did, though, she became an outsider no more. Last week, I mentioned the joy of watching your children develop into wonderful human beings. It's one of the joys of parenthood. It's a watching your child become someone you'd like to be friends with, becoming a wonderful person. And I haven't mentioned it up till now in the story, but now's the time to mention it. Did you know that Boaz is the son of Rahab, the harlot of Jericho? Matthew reveals it in his genealogy, chapter 1. You remember Rahab. Boaz's mother, let me say it another way, Boaz's mother was also a Canaanite with some baggage, the former prostitute of Jericho. Rahab and her family were the only survivors of Israel's first conquest battle for the city of Jericho. And because she hid the spies and kept the secret, and they put the scarlet cord in the window, window, flashback to Passover, God spared all of their lives. She married Salmon, probably one of the spies is what we think. And now Boaz is the offspring. So I want you just for a second just to think, Imagine the stories that Boaz heard as he grew up. Imagine that story of redemption that he was told. Here's who I used to be, and here's what God did with me, and an outsider became an insider, and now I'm part of it. Imagine how having a foreigner mother who had been grafted into the olive tree of Israel by the grace of God affected the way that Boaz viewed Ruth. You see this outsider immigrant like a parasite getting all of our food. That should go to our own people. Boaz didn't see Ruth that way at all because of his upbringing. When other men might have simply saw a foreign woman in Ruth and, and just whatever, Boaz saw something familiar in Ruth. He saw an outsider who was an incredible person who was trying to become part of God's people a person who had made commitments to forsake her nation and her gods and to pursue Israel and her God. And it seems that Boaz, it seems that Boaz, now that you know the story, was uniquely prepared for Ruth. And that Ruth was uniquely prepared for Boaz. And from a passage like this, you might sit back and look at God and say, God, I underestimated you completely. God, you're much vaster in your operation than I ever considered. How you're bringing people's lives together. There is no mistake that all of you are in this room. There is no mistake that you are where you are. Because there is a sovereign and holy God that has been directing the paths of his people. And it seems to me that you've learned something now about a marriage made in heaven, their union produced a son, a boy named Obed, who is the grandfather of David, the greatest king Israel ever had. And David's progeny produced 
a king named Jesus, the ultimate redeemer of the whole world. The story of Rahab's faith, Rahab, way back there, the story of Rahab's faith is still being played out in her son's life by the way he treats people and his values and the way he thinks and what he does. Now, what I'm trying to say, parents, is this is what you want for your kids. They're going to be their own people, no doubt about that, and that's good. But do you see how he was influenced in his decision-making by his mother? This is why Boaz would not hesitate to take a Canaanite for his wife. His mother was a Canaanite. She was an outsider. She was accepted into God's family through marriage. And that changes how you view outsiders trying to become insiders longing to be accepted. Let me just say this to you. Centuries later, another couple deeply in love walked the streets of Bethlehem looking for a place to belong. They were weary and they were desperate and they were longing for someone to show them some kindness. They found a stable in Bethlehem. And that night, a teenage girl named Mary gave birth to the Son of God. And 33 years later, the one cradled in the manger gave his life on a cross to show the whole world how much God loves us all. These stories are in your Bible to challenge your thinking so that you can come to the same conclusion that Peter and the apostles came to. Peter wouldn't talk to a Gentile. God gives him a vision. Five minutes later, there's a knock at the door, and there's a hundred soldiers down the street of the Roman army saying, we're all lost, we want to know the gospel, we're just waiting for someone to show, we're outsiders longing for someone to show us love, and someone to give us hope, and to show us how to belong to God. And God gives something to Peter, and Peter relays it to us this morning. Peter said, God spoke to me and said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This morning, that's some good news for you and I. You may be saying right now, but pastor, my background, yeah, I get it. But my history, my people, my family, we are broken. I am broken. I am unclean. He hear what I'm saying to you. Stop calling yourself unclean if God has called you clean. Stop calling yourself outsider if God has died to make you an insider. Who are God's people? How do you get to be God's people? Anyone who believes on Jesus Christ by faith and is willing to call him Lord of your life, you are grafted into the family. You are adopted into the family of God. Who are God's people? Anybody who comes to God by faith in Jesus Christ. This is God's plan and it's available for you. And it's not based on your goodness. It's based on God's has said love for you. He just loves that much. That's all. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed now. Let's make a decision before we go home. Let me propose something to you this morning. If God can turn around Ruth's life, what about you? 
if Ruth can become part of the plan of God, what about you? If with great courage and risk comes great reward, what courageous decision do you need to take? Okay, so your circumstances are not ideal right now. That could be true. But here's what I want you to know. God has not forgotten you. God is with you. You are His. It's not about being worthy. It's about His great love to you. Unwavering love. Relentless love. He has committed himself to you. I guess my question this morning is, would you commit yourself to him? Maybe you'd come and just gather around an altar this morning and say, God, for me, the courageous decision I need to make today on bended knee in the house of God is this. I rededicate my life to you today. Or maybe your big decision this morning is, God, I've been too cowardly to be baptized, but God, I want to take a courageous decision today and I want to schedule my baptism. Or God, I've been too nervous to commit to discipleship, but God, I'll commit today. I know it's the only way forward, accountability. Let somebody speak hard truths to me. Listen, maybe your circumstances are not great this morning. Okay. But it's not because God has abandoned you. I can promise you that. He says, I will never leave you. But I want to give you an opportunity this morning to make a decision because I kind of feel like Naomi. You're not waiting on God to do the next big thing in your life. God's waiting on you. Hear what I'm saying. You're not waiting on God. Ball's in your court. Put yourself out there. It could be very true that God's waiting on you to make another move now. All things are yours. For Ruth... This whole journey started in an idolatrous country with a decision. And for you this morning, it all hinges on decisions. If you haven't received Christ as your Savior, I want to give you a chance right now to make that big decision that Ruth made to call Israel's God your God. If you've never called upon Him to be your Lord, Right now is a great moment. Why don't you just call out to him something like this. Pray, dear God, I believe that you are God alone. And I know that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I have no righteousness of my own. And the only way I can ever be right is for you to give me your righteousness. God, I...
confess my sin to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the ultimate Redeemer who came to save mankind by His sacrifice and resurrection. Jesus, I'm asking you to forgive me and to save me. And I call you more than Savior this morning. I call you Lord. From this moment, I commit my life to you. You are the King, the Lord of my life. I pray that you would fill me now with your presence by the Spirit of God. And that you would begin a transformation process on my life. God, thank you for accepting me just as I am. And God, I look forward to being transformed to be like you. Thank you for saving me and making me part of your family. In Jesus' name.